You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip-syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Episode of the Family Gamers Podcast. This is episode 340. Hello, everybody. We are super excited to be doing another one of these shows. Doing it a little bit early this week because we got some travel, but that's okay. We still get to bring an awesome show to you. Hello, everybody. We are the Family Gamers. I'm your host, Andrew. And as always, I'm joined by the best partner in the world, my lovely and wonderful wife, Anitra. That's me. This week, we, uh, I guess everybody kind of knows what this show is going to be about if you've been listening. It's about games for four-year-olds. It is. It's almost like a couple weeks ago we did games for three-year-olds. What? I wonder what we're going to do in a couple of weeks. Hmm. Maybe uh, we'll switch it up and like skip straight to 10 or what? something like That's that. That's crazy. I anyway. Know. Anyway. Before we talk about that, we've got to talk about some other things. We've got to have a fact. We do have to have a fact. This one is, uh, I guess, kind of a sad fact. I'm not really sure. A couple of days ago, this article was written, about a week ago, actually, from NPR. You ever heard of NPR? Yes. Are you familiar with NPR? I have given them money, yes. (laughs) So according to this article that I found on the NPR website... There are these whales called right whales. Are you familiar with the I am right familiar whale? with right whales, yeah. Are they better than wrong whales? They're or not left. left. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really sure which one. I don't know why they're called right whales. But what I do know is they are extremely endangered. And there are only an estimated 340 of them left in the world. Whew. Yeah, so we will uh, include a link to this article in the show notes to this show, but... You will notice a line that says showing up in unexpected places has been dangerous for the whales. Many were struck by ships or tangled in fishing gear. A serious danger for a species with only 340 animals left. Well, that's kind of a sad fact for... I know. I did warn you, though. Is it a warning if you tell me and go right into how terrible it is? But that's Were fine. you expecting an option? I, do, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, you also have a fact. If you find yourself in a situation where your credit has taken a hit, you've got a difficult hole to dig out of, but it's not impossible. The two most important things to start doing, if you aren't already, is to pay all of your bills on time and pull your credit reports from annualcreditreport.com. You get each of the three once a year for free. So space out those pulls. On your credit reports, you're looking for errors, forgotten accounts, and your payment history. The best way to improve your score is a good payment history, so keeping up with your progress on your credit report can help you track your progress. Finally, if you need more help, you should seek out a qualified credit counselor. Most credit counselors work for organizations that will try to push you into a debt management plan. Try to avoid this if you can, and just work with the credit counselor to come up with a budget and a plan to pay down your debts. A debt management plan is better than bankruptcy... But you need to be aware and informed about what you're getting into. There will be a link in the show notes for the FDC's website with information about credit counseling and debt management plans for anyone who wants to learn more. Remember, you can always schedule a short phone call by going to firstmovefinancial.com familygamers. And even if they aren't the right fit to help you, they can point you in the right direction. All right. Thanks so much to the team at First Move Financial for sponsoring another episode of the show. So let's start it off with what we've been playing. Yeah. Uh, you want to start with Castle Panic? I'm going to start with Castle Panic. Okay. So we have the Castle Panic Big Box. This is the new art edition. It's amazing. Thank you so much to Fireside Games for sending this to us. This is something that we're kind of planning a couple of videos around. But we played the Siege Engines. What is it? Engines of War or something like that. Uh, expansion to Castle Panic. And we very much lost. <laughs> we were doing really, really well until Elliot, our youngest, drew for his first monster the draw three monsters. And then as his second monster in the draw three monsters, he drew the draw four monsters. Oh, so <laughs> yeah, many monsters. It was not good. 
you know, we resolved all that and we like, we're almost going to get out of it. And then he pulled the orc warlord or something, which is like another four monsters. And it was just too much. We just, there was nothing we could do. Sure. But the siege engines are really cool. This isn't a new expansion. This is obviously the new art for the siege engine expansion, but it's a really neat way to modify the game. So each of the siege engines comes into play with two orcs underneath it and you need to destroy the siege engine and then the orcs are out and then you need to kill the orcs. So it's a whole extra thing. But to balance that out, you can build catapults and ballistas that go onto this thing called the keep, which actually sits inside your tower. So you have the wall, then you have the tower walls and then you have the keep inside. Okay. Ballistas are really powerful and catapults are also really powerful. But it just wasn't enough. They just kept coming and it just, bleh. There's also like a forward camp. So when the forward camp goes down, anything that gets put into that arc gets to start one ring closer. Mm -hmm. So it's just, Mm -hmm. you know, cuts down on that basically timer until the enemies get to your walls kind of thing. So yeah, it was uh, hard. I thought we were doing really well until just that unloading of monsters i mean that's the, the kind of thing that is really hard to recover from. yeah totally and everybody kind of handled it well and stuff like that but we still lost so i'm really looking forward to continuing to play that our eight-year-old is now pulling it out on his own saying let's play castle panic which is perfect i and mean that's pretty it allows great. us to get it to the table more because it's not us being like play games play games kind of like we talked about with james hudson last week yeah what about you well in the past week and change I have played a lot of Home Sweet Home or Not. That's going to be our snap review in this episode of the podcast. Mm -hmm. Asher has been a really good sport every time that I've been like, let's try another scenario of this game. Once we got the base rules down, all of the scenarios are pretty simple, I guess. Easy is not quite the right word, but none of them were as interesting as we wanted them to be. So we tried a bunch. It was fine. Yeah, it's been a while since we've reviewed a game where we haven't been able to say, this didn't work for us, but if you like XYZ, you might like this game. This was the first one in a while where we were like, this one we really just unfortunately cannot recommend. Right, and it's it's not even that it's a bad game, it's just meh. Yeah, it uh, ultimately lacked a uniqueness. It, it lacked a hook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll hear about it in the, uh, in the break for the show. So yeah. We don't need to talk about it anymore. But you know, it does have a hook. Uh, Roll to the Top Journeys. Uh, that's not the one I was going to mention, but yes, that one does too. <laughs> okay. So Roll to the Top Journeys we got from All Play, mm-hmm. formerly, formerly Board, board game, game Tables. tables. Yeah. And we were just like, okay, well, this is a review game and it's supposed to be relatively short. Let's try it. I am hooked. I want to play <laughs> a lot of this game. It's very simple. Yeah. But it's just good. And you know what? I mean, I really kind of felt that way about On Tour. It has a lot of On Tour vibes to me. Except it's way shorter. It is way shorter. You're right. And the way that it's mechanically constructed is simpler. Yeah. But it just feels similar in the sense that it's almost like a number placing race. Yes. I like the middle of this game. I've said this to you a couple times already. I like the middle of this game a lot because I think that's where all the decision space is. But the beginning seems a little too open and the end feels like playing out the string. But the middle is really interesting to me. Yeah, I agree. I actually like the whole game, but I can understand why the middle is the most interesting part. Mm-hmm. So what game were you going to talk about? The game I was going to talk about is Fire Tower. We pulled this out and played it at four players. Once again, I am really appreciating how with the expansion they added in for the original game, this thing called Shadow of the Wood, which gives knocked out players something to do on their turns Mm -hmm. and makes it possible for a knocked out player or two knocked out players in a four-player game to win the game. It's one of those, it's really, really hard, but you might be able to make it work. And in fact, Asher and I both got knocked out and we were super close to being able to win the game. And then just, I had a not great role that made me draw cards and none of the cards worked for me. (laughs) So it was like a bad role and a bad draw were the reason why we couldn't win. But that meant that we had that really tense down to the wire feeling with it, which was great. Sure. That's cool. We played the last scenario in Suspects. Finally. Finally. So we are moving on from that one. I mean, each of the three scenarios in that are a single play, so it's kind of, yeah. you know, we're yeah, yeah. done. 
And, you know, just like some of the other ones, 60% of it, we nailed it. And then <laughs> just completely whiffed on other parts of it. And it's kind of weird how you can do that in this game. Honestly, it makes me like the game more that okay. you can do that. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, if it was the kind of game where if you don't get everything right, you can't get anything right, that would be really, really frustrating. Right, exactly. Well, I think that's part of the issue we had with the little sample case because there were fewer questions mm -hmm. as well as being a shorter case. If you got one of those questions wrong, you probably got all of them wrong. It just didn't work well. I also and felt like the sample case didn't hold together anywhere near as well. Yes, that is also true. But, I mean, in a regular case here, I think we had five questions and then like a bonus of like, what did the killer do that was over the top and too much and they shouldn't have done yeah. or whatever. Right. We got more than half of those questions right. It was like, okay, we figured out all these other things and we completely missed this detail whoops oh well like we get to the end we're like well we performed halfway adequately we helped the police guy figure out how the crime was done right yeah sure. i mean it's the kind of thing where it's like i mean okay like you could have changed almost nothing and just had somebody else be the final crime committer and it still would have been reasonable with all of the clues that appeared mm -hmm. like so mm -hmm. i don't really feel bad about that you right. know what i mean so that's fine i agree all right, next on the list is Mouse Cheese Cat Cucumber. This is a fight in the box games game. The review for this should be coming out the same day this podcast comes out or right around the same time, we hope. Ugh, what do I... Mm -hmm. I really wanted this game, out of the three games in this kind of fight in the box series that we had in for review, this is the one I had the most hope for. We've played it a couple of times. It's really I like, like the frustrating. Vibe. Yeah. I like the vibe of the game. The ideas are kind of interesting, but... It's just too unbalanced. So this is a game where there's a mouse, there's the cheese, there's a cat, and there's a cucumber. And each of them have asymmetric win victory conditions. Yes. But the game starts with the mouse and the cheese on the board. Yes. So at the beginning of the game, the mouse can win almost immediately. Yeah. They're the only ones that can win almost immediately. The other cards have to wait until they come out. I mean, the cheese is out, but the cheese has to outplay everybody else. The cheese and the cucumber can only win if you make it to the other kind of way to end the game. And then at that point, their win condition is fulfilled. Right. And the cat can only win once the cat gets drawn. Right. So I had the mouse and I won on my first turn. Yeah. It was lame. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. I mean, all of these games... I like the ideas that Sepiyun is going for in these games. Yeah. I like the ideas. I like the concepts. I don't like any of the games, really. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. It's a bad run for us, I guess. But I do believe in supporting indie publishers. And I do think that there are some interesting ideas in these games. I just don't know that these are the best final execution of these ideas. Yeah. That makes sense? Yeah. Uh, so that is Mouse, Cheese, Cat, Cucumber. It is an interesting idea. It's a game that has a maze where you're moving pieces of the maze and it's a partially hidden role with asymmetric goals, but also you have a player power that you can use if you reveal who you are. I mean, I like all of those pieces, but it makes me feel like, you know, did we not set up the maze right? Are we missing something about how to play this game? But I think you're right. It's just that the game itself is missing something to keep it feeling more balanced yeah i totally agree we played two other small games that uh, do seem to be a little bit more balanced uh, <laughs> one of them is fruition again we played at a, a restaurant again this is now my go-to restaurant game 100 percent. okay it's just so simple to get started in it it's really really portable and importantly, it's the kind of game where you're like, oh, the food's here. All right, count up how many cards everybody has won. Whoever has the most is the winner. Done. But the other one is another button-shy game called Numsters. This is a very silly concept for a game. It's based on the idea of six was afraid of seven because seven, eight, nine. Mm -hmm. There is this whole deck of cards for each number, one to 18. And the eight is a mouth that is used to eat other cards. <laughs> it is a solo game that plays pretty much in your hand, which Buttonshy amazingly has not done before. I really like the concept here. You basically have a hand of cards. The eight is somewhere in the middle of it. 
and you want to arrange things so that you have sequential numbers on either side of the eight, and then the smaller number eats the larger number. Put another card in your hand from the deck, and you get another chance to shift cards around, and you do it again. Numbers need to eat each other. The idea is to get through the entire deck of cards until your hand is just the eight and one other card, and the eight is not on top. That's it. That's the puzzle. Every single one of these number cards has some special power. If it is the card on top, we'll allow the eight to eat numbers in a slightly different way. So you're not constantly having to just be like, oh, well, I got rid of the four. Now I'm never going to be able to get rid of, you know, the five. Sure. So I liked it. I'm definitely going to be carrying it around and playing it a bunch more to really wrap my head around all the ins and outs of it. But excellent solo easy to travel with game. Great. The last game I want to talk about is a game from Pandasaurus. This is Roller Coaster Rush. First thing I got to say about this game is this game has some serious toy factor associated with it. So in this game, you are literally building a roller coaster for a marble. Yeah, you build a little plastic roller coaster and you earn money based on how far the marble can go around the coaster. Yeah, so you're randomly dealt seven cards or whatever the card count is, something like that. And you take those like vacuum form pieces, right? And all of the pieces have kind of like a key fit kind of a thing. Mm -hmm, So, mm -hmm. you know, you can rearrange them however you want, but whatever your pieces are, you take those and you build a coaster. And there's curvy pieces and L-shaped pieces and there's like humps and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So you build a coaster. On your turn, you have this like approved or not approved card that flips back and forth and on your turn you can either bid for a piece or if you are approved to demo your coaster you can demo your coaster if you bid for a piece you pick a piece that either you or your opponent has and you say okay we're you know we're bidding for this and each of you blind bids with some of the coins that you have you start out with whatever 15 coins or something you blind bid for that piece and you reveal and whoever spends the most money in their blind bid gets that piece and the card that's associated with that piece gets flipped to the bought side so it can never be like rebid on you can't take pieces away once they've been air quote bought yeah whoever whoever bought it it now it permanently belongs to them correct so you do that and if you gain or lose a piece you flip your unapproved card to approved and that means that you are now able to demo your coaster Mm -hmm. if you bid on your own piece and you win it you have not gained or lost a piece so it doesn't change your approval status okay okay Um, or if you attempt to bid on someone else's piece and you lose you have not you have not changed your approval status yeah that's pretty much the game so you go back and forth and you do this until all of both of your sets of pieces are bought Mm -hmm. at that point you kind of do like a final rearranging of your coaster and then you drop your marble and it goes. When you do a demo, what, this is kind of what you were talking about. When you drop your marble, however many of the sections that it passes, not including the first section, is the number of coins you get. So if your thing is seven sections long, but you didn't really build your coaster very efficiently, and so your marble only went fully past like two of the sections, you're only going to get two coins. And of course, you need those coins to then turn around and bid on more sections you know, in the future. So that's kind of how the economy of the game works. And then at the very end, when you let your marble go, all of the different pieces, depending on the air quote difficulty of a marble getting over them, has a number of flags on it. And so when you drop your marble at the end, at the final thing, however many sections the marble has fully crossed, you add up all those flags that are on the sides of all the pieces, whoever the most flags wins. All right. It's a very simple, straightforward game. There's a little bit of strategy conceptually in the bidding part of this game, but ultimately it's just a fun game to play. I think you could play this down to like six. It, little hands might have a little bit of trouble getting the pieces together, but you just help them. I mean, it's not a big deal, yeah. right? So you can do a little bit of talking about how... Well, you want the bigger hump to be earlier because you're going to have more energy in the marble. And Mm -hmm, so you can kind of talk a little bit about physics in that way, I guess. It's a Scott Holmes game, which so it's Mm -hmm, kind of surprising mm -hmm. that the toy factor is as high as it is. No. But um, yeah, I mean, it's fine. You know, it's it's not rocking my world. I like that they're trying different things. That's the thing that I appreciate about this. But that's Roller Coaster Rush from Pandasaurus. 
I'm looking forward to uh, trying that at more than two players, too. I, I feel like it would change it up a little bit. Oh, yeah, for sure, because it, there's so much back and forth right now yeah. with the bidding. Yeah, it'll be better at more players. All right, cool. Yeah. Well, the last thing I have is Galaxy Trucker. Mm-hmm. Arson Asher noticed that this has been sitting on the shelf for a little while, and he's like, hey, how about this? We could play this. Uh, so we did. We played pretty much a basic level two galaxy trucker game to remind us how the rules and everything work in preparation for working on the galaxy trucker expansion that Keep we're going on to trucking. review yeah <laughs> i love the, the humor in this game oh it's so dumb i love it i love the way the humor comes out even in the stupidly frantic gameplay <laughs> <laughs> So we already have a review for the yes. the base game. It's the new base game, we should say, yes, on the website. So the new base game, they've dramatically shrunk the pieces, the tiles. And the board. So yeah. it's a lot less oppressive on the table. Like you can actually play this on a normal yes. table now. Yes. And they've taken a lot of things that they kind of learned in the iOS video game. Just some quality of life improvements. Mm-hmm. So I recommend you go to thefamilygamers.com and just look up Galaxy Trucker and you'll see the review for that. That's something that obviously when we release that expansion review we'll link to. But I do recommend taking a look at that if this is something that interests you because I think that the newer version of the game is a better version of the game than the older version of the game. Yeah. And it's actually in print, yeah. which is helpful. I mean, yeah, that yeah. that's good too. Yeah. And that's it. That's all I have. Well, thankfully, we have something else, too. Ooh. Do I hear science? You do hear science in the form of plastic coating over a marshmallow treat. Okay. We're going to do this right now? Sure. All right. So what Anitra is holding in her hot little hands are peeps. But, but these not are just not any your regular peeps. peeps. These are Easter clearance peeps right here. <laughs> um, these are... Hot tamales, fierce cinnamon flavored peeps. Yeah, I'm a little worried about this. I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, I shouldn't be that worried about it, but I don't love that tamale. It's kind of usually like a cinnamony kind oh, of. Oh, yeah. It's it's yeah. that spicy cinnamon flavor. Yeah, it's fine, I guess. So here's what's going to happen. So we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Stefan talking about his durian drink. Oh, mm. oh so mm-hmm. gross. I don't know if we mentioned on the show, but he actually put a video of him drinking this thing in the Family Gamers community chat. So, in order to be a good sport, we figure it's only fair if we take video of me eating one of these peeps. Maybe we'll include Anitra in this as well. If you want to see the video of me eating this peep, you'll you'll hear the you know commentary on here. But if you want to see the video, you're going to have to go to the Family Gamers community. There actually is a specific for science separate chat that we're going to put this video in. When you hear this, it'll have been there for a couple of days. But if you want to see it, that's where you got to go. All right, I need to try. I've opened this package, and boy, howdy, do these smell like cinnamon. (coughs) All right, well, here we are, and uh, we're going to eat some of these hot tamale peeps. Ugh, it already, I don't like that smell. Combines Here, two of my least favorite candies. Here's a peep. Woo! Have a peep. I am going to double this up. I'm going I'm going two peeps at once because I always oh, have man, to. Oh, man, they're pink on the inside. They're pink on the too. inside. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Oh, boy. Pretty, eh. Kind of disappointing. I mean, well, it depends on how you def- define disappointing. I was expecting pain. Yeah, there is absolutely no spice on these whatsoever. I mean, I taste some cinnamon. Yeah, actually, they're pretty good. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm not a big Peeps fan, but hot tamales, hot is a lie. These are not hot at all. I'm not a big Peeps fan, but I would eat another one of these. You want another one? Sure. All right, here you go. Here, just take them both. You can have them both. No, I'm not taking them. <laughs> all right, only well, one. Well, I'll eat this one too. All right. Well, um, the hot tamale fierce cinnamon Peeps are neither hot nor fierce. But they are cinnamon-flavored peeps, and they are shockingly good. Honey, we've got guests coming over. We're going to need to clean up. Can we get a maid? You know, picking up the house is like a cooperative game. Funny you should mention that. 
This is a snap review for Home Sweet Home or Not, a cooperative game system of adventures inside a family home. Home Sweet Home or Not is by Paul Peterson of Smash Up fame and published by DeVere. Two to five players age eight and up can play in about a half an hour. There's five scenarios in the box, and they all use the system a little differently. So what is this system, and how is it related to the art? The game board for Home Sweet Home is a house built out of little box rooms, hallway tiles, and wooden doors. It's arranged differently for every scenario. There are seven different family member standees to choose from. And so everyone should be able to find at least one that they identify with. The cards aren't particularly exciting, but they're clear. And some of them are pretty clever. Cake sling. Nothing happens. Story vortex. Many of the cards do require reading, and there's at least one typo that we found. Also, the number two room is represented in pink on the cards, but on the room itself, it's purple. There's one more issue that we have with the art, and we'll get to that in the surprises. But first, let's talk about how we play this game. Although there are five scenarios in the rulebook, the core of the gameplay is the same. Start by setting up the house. Then set up event and item decks, adding in any scenario-specific cards. Generally, the player standees will all start outside the front door, and each room in the house will get two face-down item cards. Start each player's turn by flipping over the top event card and following its instructions. Then the player may take up to three actions. Moving to an adjacent room or hallway is an action, and so is interacting with item cards. Picking them up, dropping them, swapping them with cards already in a room, and exchanging with another player in the same room. One twist of this system is that a player may do multiple interactions with items as a single action, as long as every interaction is with a different item. So, like, I'm picking up two items and dropping a third one. That's all one action. Whenever a player standee moves into a room, you flip all of the cards there face up so that you know what you're working with. At the end of a turn, refill all the empty room spaces with cards from the item deck. Most of the scenarios involve getting specific item cards, or classes of item cards, to specific places within the house. Whether that's to tidy up, to make weapons to drive away ghosts, or create a black hole of junk to get rid of an alien. What an idea. The group loses if the event deck is empty before they reach their objective. So what did we expect from Home Sweet Home or not? Well, it took us a little while to get into this game. Learning a new system can be a little intimidating, even if it's a fairly simple one. The rulebook lays out basic actions, but even the starting scenario has specific rules that don't carry over. So at the beginning, it did feel a little overwhelming. I really liked the modular room design. It makes me think of Ice Cool, and I was excited to see it in a cooperative game, more like a pandemic or a forbidden island. But that leads to our first surprise. The rooms are too small. At least the small ones. <laughs> they just barely fit two cards, but they're supposed to also hold standees and these large wooden door clips as well. We had to take everything out of the small rooms to even get the cards out. By our fourth game, we just weren't even using the doors at all. They're bulky and they don't really add anything to the game other than like holding the rooms together. Uh, yeah, but this isn't like an ice cool where you need structural integrity to the board. Sure. The cards are also supposed to be stacked if there are more than two in the room, and it matters which stack a card is in. Again, with these really small rooms, it was hard to keep those stacks separate. I was also pretty disappointed by the color issues and the typos, as we mentioned in the art section. The two room with the purple indicator and the five room with the blue indicator, they look too similar. It was hard to tell them apart. Lastly, the scenario difficulty is all over the place. The first two scenarios were really easy. In fact, when we were playing the Restless Spirits, we did too well finding items and making weapons, and we had to wait for the event deck to run down so we could find all the ghosts to defeat them. But the Egg Hunt and Alien scenarios got really hard really fast. The Alien has event cards that abduct players to its spaceship, and you lose if everyone is on the ship. This means that you have no idea how long you actually have to find the items in the house. The Egg Hunt keeps a relatively small event deck, it doesn't add anything, but it adds 25 more items to the deck, and you need to retrieve them all. And it makes it harder to cycle through all of the other items that you don't need. We played this with two players and we could not do it, 
I do think it would have been easier with more. Of all the scenarios, the only one we'd be likely to play again was the alien scenario because the alien moves every round and pushes players out of rooms. It's just more interesting because it makes things actually unpredictable. So, Anitra, would we recommend this game? We probably wouldn't recommend Home Sweet Home or not. It's an okay game, but it's not great. And the difficulties we had with the rules and the cards really aren't welcoming to guests. It's short, and the theme is cute, but there are plenty of other cooperative games I'd reach for instead of this one. Maybe with a few more rounds of polish and balancing, we would feel better about it, but at this point, we're going to rate this game two doors out of five. And that's Home Sweet Home. Or not. In in a a snap. And we're back. Hey, Nitra. Yes. The Family Gamers community continues to grow. What? I know. We've got four more people to say hello to. We do. Awesome. Loving it. And also, Grogu is there to say hi. He's got a cute little wave. Mm -hmm. Hello. I'm Grogu. Mm, Grogu says hi. Hi, says Grogu. Whatever it is. (laughs) I don't know. That's the best I got. Mm, Hello, you say. I'm done, I promise. Anyway, welcome to Alicia. Welcome to David. Welcome to Matt House. And welcome to Emily. And I hope we didn't butcher any of your names. But if we did, I'm sorry. We're sorry. We're trying our best. We're just boring Americans. Thanks so much for joining the community. We hope you are enjoying it. And uh, if your first entree to the community is us eating hot tamale flavored peeps, I apologize. (laughs) But hopefully you're getting some good recommendations for some board games to play with your family, with your kids, with the children in your lives, with just your family, whatever it might be. The rest of you should stop on in and say hi to these new members. Mm -hmm, Definitely. All right. With that, we're going to get into some games for four-year-olds. Our top 10 games for four-year-olds. All right. And obviously, we're going to talk about more than 10 games, but top 10 games. All 10 are of equal weight because that's just how we roll. So let's start, Anitra, with talking about some things that a typical four-year-old can do. Yes. Uh, So last week, we talked about what three-year-olds can do. Four-year-olds can usually distinguish different shapes and usually know the shape names. They can identify colors by name. They can begin to narrate what they're doing and what they did in the past, although their sense of time may still be skewed. You know, an hour ago is the same thing as yesterday is the same thing as a year ago. But they do know the difference between now and before Mm -hmm. and future. They can count to 10, and they can build things with blocks, not just try to make a stack, but actually build a more complex structure. However, their attention span is still only about 10 minutes, 15 at the most. So games should still be really short. Although four-year-olds may ask to play the same game over and over again in a single session. It's like a double-edged sword. (laughs) The other thing is that we are less wary of small pieces than we are with three-year-olds. Most four-year-olds have gotten over the hump of putting things in their mouths. So, obviously, I mean, we're only talking about a year apart, and we talked about late three-year-old versus early three-year-olds before, and obviously the same thing is true with Mm four-year-olds. So there are a couple of things here that are overlaps, but I think that they're still appropriate. You know, if we talked about something for a three-year-old and said this might be a tiny bit of a stretch, guess what? A day later when they turn four, (laughs) it's pretty similar. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start with... This isn't ranked, but this is my favorite game to recommend for a four-year-old. Because it's great. And we've almost kind of sort of talked about it already this show. Uh, We have (laughs) My First Castle Panic. So our son Elliot, who is now eight and a half and requesting to play regular Castle Panic with expansions and the whole deal. When he was a little over four, close to four and a half, we got My First Castle Panic for review. And we were skeptical. And he loved it. He cottoned onto it right away. We would play it together, and he would also play it independently. It doesn't require any reading. It doesn't require any counting. It does require shape matching and color matching. And importantly, unlike big, regular Castle Panic, it's very short, there's one path, and you throw the monsters in the dungeon rather than saying that you've killed them. Mm -hmm. And who doesn't like a game? That involves cleaning up as part of the game. Yes, I know, right? (laughs) So great. Yeah, this is an excellent, excellent implementation of a game that we kind of wondered, how do you make this more simple? And then we found out. And then we found out. (laughs) Yep. 
Uh, this one does not, as of now, have an updated art style to it or anything like that, but it wasn't exactly a match to the it, old art style anyway. It, it so is neither a match fine. to the old one or the new one. Right. right it's right, its right. own thing. Yep. Yep. And it's great. And it totally deserves to be in your collection if you've got that three, four, or five-year-old, really, yeah. in your family. All right. The next game on our list is a memory matching game. Memory matching is kind of a popular thing. Common. Common, for, Common for, this for this age range. Yeah. Range. This is Disney's It's a Small World. So this is memory matching with a twist. A literal twist. <laughs> you can physically move the walls. They twist around. It's a really cool tactile experience. But it also provides a twist to gameplay. Although it's a memory involved game, you can encourage kids to move around the table because nothing is actually hidden. It's just pointing in a different direction. Yeah, so this game has a 3D aspect to it. Yes. Which is the key. I mean, that's a kind of an important part to the way that this game works with the way that the boat moves through it, yeah. basically. Yeah, so you are moving a little boat. Basically, you have two teams moving their little boats around within this 3D structure that has walls, and on the walls are scenes from It's a Small World. Basically different little pastoral scenes from all over the world. You're drawing cards that show you one aspect of a scene. So like an animal or a person or an object. And you can look at where your boat is and say, hmm, in this quadrant that my boat is in, can I see that thing that's on my cards? You match as many cards as you can. And then, you know, there's more moving and more card pulling. The cool thing is that certain cards will also let you literally twist those walls around. It, they've got a little knob on them. They snap right into place. It's really satisfying. And so you've got all of that. That tactile nature is going to keep kids involved. And it's still not much longer than your typical memory game. You're still going to play it in 15 minutes or less. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very cute and shockingly durable. The way it's all put together, I find it much more appealing as an adult than your typical memory game of just putting tiles down on the floor or whatever. Sure. Speaking of games you might put on the floor, <laughs> the next game on our list is Silly Street. Okay, so you talk about a game that is appealing to adults, but kids can play. This one absolutely falls into that category for me. So in Silly Street, you're moving along a path and you want to get to the end. You draw a card and the card has some kind of a thing that you do on it instead of just like move to the orange square you know do you know any games like that or mm -hmm. just, yeah. it'll say things like howl like a wolf or find three of some type of icon on the board find three animals in the water yeah or some other kind of silly thing that you might want to do maybe with someone else or just kind of do on your own or everybody has to do something silly or whatever and then you do that thing, and then you get to move that number of spaces. So this is a game that encourages kids to move a little bit, like you mentioned with It's a Small World, having to move around the board. Mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. the board for this is relatively large. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you might have to move around to see everything on the table, or there's actual physical activities, so it'll get your kids moving a little bit. Yep. I mean, it's not going to, it's not exertion, but it'll get them moving, which is just kind of a fun thing to do. It's just a nice game with a defined physical aspect to it, but yeah. it encourages a lot of these simple things like turn-taking. There is reading in this game, so you definitely do need to have a reader involved. Yeah, this is a game for an adult or a, a big kid to play with younger kids. Yep, totally agree. The other thing that I've noticed is that in Silly Street, there's an emphasis on sharing your victory or doing things that benefit multiple players or even like playing out the string so that everybody makes it to the end of the board, the end of the path, so that then you can all have a dance party together. <laughs> that also makes this great for kids who have a hard time with losing. It's still a competitive game. It's not a cooperative game, but you can gently kind of push in this direction of like, oh, I got there first, but when you get here, then we're going to have a dance party. Sure. The next game on the list is a game that I just love. I love this game so much. I would just play this with adults because I love yes. it. It's, it's such a great game. If your kid like racing, 
you should play Monza. Monza is like my first car racing game. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. On your turn, you roll six dice that have colors on them. And then you sequence those colors together to move your car ahead on colored spaces on the track. While your kid is racing their car against however many other people, it plays up to six, which, which is, is also nice. Yep. This is a little hobby game, by the way. Little kids will also be learning sequencing and how to string actions together. Oh, if I do white and then red, I can go here. But if I do blue and then red, I still have the white and I can use it over here and I can go further. Yep. So, you know, at that early four, you're going to be explaining that mm-hmm. at a later four or as they experience the game, this is something they can learn. Yes. So it's very simple, but very valuable skill building. And it's just a great little game. It's just fun. Yeah, it's a great game. Mm-hmm. That's why we're recommending it. <laughs> That's how this works. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next is Dragomino. We talked about Dragomino uh, a couple weeks ago. Dragomino is a wonderful twist on the King Domino style that introduces some luck. You're matching these tiles just like you do. When you get these eggs, they might be empty. So that's that luck component that makes it a little bit easier for younger ages to be able to handle it. Yeah, and one of the difference between playing this as a four-year-old and playing it as a three-year-old is a three-year-old is probably going to be able to play the game. It's matching, and then you take an egg that matches the two things that you put together. But a four-year-old can begin to understand, like, hey, we've already seen a lot of dragons in this color. That means that probably most of the eggs that are left in this color are empty. But you know what? We've seen a lot of empty eggs in this other color. So if I can make a match over there, there's a good chance that I'll get a dragon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they might not be able to articulate it quite that well, but those kinds of ideas will be starting to come into heads. Percolate through, yeah. Percolate is a good word for that. All right. Next on the list is another dragon-themed game that is also a repeat, and it is also a Haba game, like Monza was, and that is Dragon's Breath. Man, Dragon's Breath is so good. Yep. It's another one of those clean-up-while-you-play games. I know. It's so good. (laughs) Um, But really, like, we've talked about Dragon's Breath a bunch of times before. It's a dexterity game... But kind it's of. also a prediction game. It's the kind of game that gives your kids meaningful choices, even though it's really simple. You know, the meaningful choice can be, hey, do I pull this ring straight up really fast? Or do I kind of slowly pull it off and a little bit to the side to see if I can shift some more stuff over my direction? And that makes it so much more interesting And as we mentioned, when we're talking about it with three-year-olds, there are several steps built into the rules to graduate your kids up into a slightly more complex version of the game where you are trying to predict what kind of colors are going to fall out of the column the most. It's just good. (laughs) I mean, you've said everything to say about it, basically. It's just excellent. Next, another repeat. This is our last repeat from the show that we did a couple of weeks ago, and this is Turtle Splash. So this is that game that combines dexterity with memory. It's probably the only other kind of memory game that any actually likes. <laughs> I am perfectly willing to play memory games. They're I just... didn't say that you wouldn't play them. I said like. <laughs> I'm terrible at Turtle Splash, but I do enjoy it. That's because you can't managed to keep the thing on like we need to put the walls up for you i can't flick the disc very well and then i also can't remember where things are to find my little animal friends that i need (laughs) so i think i talked about this when we actually did the review for turtle splash one of the things that surprised me about this game is at least for an adult because you need to switch from um, like memory mode to dexterity mode it makes it harder in my opinion to remember things yeah As if I needed any more challenge in that area. (laughs) But I just, this game is so darn charming. I mean, that's the thing about this. It's just a charming little game. It's just fun. You can play it with your kids. It's just great. All right, Anitra, we got some fresh stuff. All right, it is time for me to get on my hobby horse. Mmm, fresh cardboard. In fact, that is the name of the game. Mm. It is mmm. This is one of that rare class of game where I love it so much that I felt like I needed to write a review and get the word out there, 
even though I had to buy my own copy to do it. <laughs> I don't even know what turned us on to this game that we ended up buying it, but I mean, I certainly don't regret it. It's a great game. I was recommended it somewhere else probably like six or seven years ago yeah, now. Yeah, we've had it forever. Yeah. Mm is by Reiner Kinesia. It is a solo or cooperative press your luck puzzle, but it is entirely playable and understandable by a four-year-old. The board has two sides, so you have a more challenging side and a less challenging side. And there's a few other things you can do to manipulate the rules and get them at the level you want for your four-year-old. But it is really simple, and most four-year-olds can understand. We're going to roll the dice, we're looking for food, and any time that we finish off one of the food pieces, the cat doesn't move. We are mice. We don't want the cat to move. We want to steal all the food and get away before the cat can get to the door. That's it. That's the game. I love that this is one of those games. So one of the things we've talked about a bunch is modularity in games and how that really helps games to be more playable. And we talked about games like King Domino Origins and how it's got Mm -hmm. the three modes and how that's really helpful. Mm is a game that manages to do this without having like full on different modes to it. So the rule set stays the same, but the two sides of the board, one side is an easier experience than the other side. And then there's some variants that are in the rule book that are very similar. Where you place the cat to start, how many times you can re-roll the dice. That's basically yeah, it. Yeah, but the fact that it's got two boards, all these different kinds of ways to play without adding significant mechanics which is what kingdom and origins does which Mm -hmm. i'm fine with but i just like that the ramp up is even more transparent in mm. it's a fun game and it can really flex and i like that a lot yeah Mm is a game that i will happily play solo just me on the more challenging side because it's i mean like i said it's a press your luck puzzle so you can't predict exactly what's going to happen and you do need to, you know, make decisions that might be more risky in some circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's excellent. Our ninth game is one that I would not play with kids younger than four, for sure. Mm-hmm. Four is kind of the mm, just barely old enough. And that is a game called Gnomes at Night. So we first saw this in, I think it was 2018. Gnomes at Night is a cooperative game from Peaceable Kingdom. It has a vertical board that is itself kind of a puzzle. And the thing about the cooperation in this game is that the two sides of the board are somewhat different. So you've got these magnetic gnomes, one for the player on either side of the board. And the thing is that only one player can move them at a time because if you try to move them both, the magnets will detach from each other and fall off. So it becomes this communication puzzle you are doing it timed looking for specific items on the board and you have to communicate to each other you know like oh i'm moving the guy now i moved him up a little bit i moved him right a little bit oh no i have walls all around me hey friend can you move the gnome up at all it's like well yes i can move him up but only if i move him over here and and they move him over and up and you're like that doesn't work for me How else can we get over towards the, you know, the top right corner of the board? This is going to be challenging for four-year-olds. They are still working on directions like left and right. Technically, you don't need to always keep those straight if you can point above the board and be Mm. like, go this way. One of the things I really like about this game is that it forces the people that are playing to use fine motor skills. Because if you just pull on the gnome that's on your side too quickly, the magnets will detach and they'll fall and then you have to like start over. So it actually forces kids while they're being excited about a timer to have to control their body. And that is a like a tension, like it's a dexterity tension yeah. that kids really need to learn like really badly. <laughs> and our 14 year old doesn't even do it half the time. So I wouldn't call it educational, but it's good practice. It is an educational game, but it's educating skills. It's not educating knowledge. Sure. Because it's also a game that's all about communication. Yep. yep. So it's communication, some fine motor dexterity. And also emotional control, because this is a game where if you don't come into it with the right mindset, you can get really angry at your teammate, your partner who you are trying to work with. And so I find Gnomes at Night both fun, it is a fun game, 
but also it teaches all of these skills and an older four-year-old is ripe for learning how to balance all of those things. I need to talk to you and communicate what I'm doing and what I want you to do. I need to move this thing carefully and let you know when I'm moving it so you don't try to move it at the same time. I need to do all of this with time pressure and excitement. And I need to also not get my feelings hurt if things don't work out. And it's an incredibly friendly way to make all of those things begin to work together. Yep. I should mention Gnomes at Night is primarily a two-player game, but there is a way to do team play built right into the box. So you can play three players with two on one team, one on the other, or four players with two people on either team. I'm not a huge fan of it, but it does work pretty well. You're taking turns based on the cards that get flipped. There's a little like jewel color. And when your jewel color comes up, then it is your turn to move. All right. Drum roll time for number 10. (laughs) This is one that we used to talk about a lot and we haven't talked about nearly as much anymore. Yeah, I think it's because our kids are a little bit older. You don't say. Yeah, our kids have grown out of this one, but the game is Robot Turtles. So this was originally, this was like one of the first Kickstarters we ever kickstarted. Yes. This might have been our introduction to Kickstarter. Close. Pretty close. Pretty close. So Robot Turtles is a game that was conceived of by a Google engineer. It is now published by ThinkFun. And in Robot Turtles, you have a turtle. And it's pretty much a sandbox game. So this is really a game where a parent needs to set it up or create a thing, a maze. Doesn't necessarily have to be a maze, but whatever. On this grid that's on this board. And the goal is for the turtle to get to the gem. And the way that the turtle gets to the gem is by playing cards that are things like move forward, turn left, turn right. If you use some of the objects, there could be like an ice thing that you turtle has to use a laser to melt the ice thing. And basically the point of Robot Turtles as a sandbox game is to teach logical sequential thinking. If you've ever played Quirky Circuits, it's similar to Quirky Circuits, except Quirky Circuits has a lot more scaffolding around it. It actually has a story and it has like baked in goals, whereas Robot Turtles is a lot more sandbox. Well, and Quirky Circuits is designed to be more gamey yeah, and, yeah, for and sure. challenging. For sure, for sure. But I don't think Quirky Circuits would exist if Robot Turtles didn't come before it. I agree. So the way that we did this with our now oldest, I guess she was the one that was super young when we played this, mm-hmm. was we literally would say, okay, we would kind of set up a maze or whatever, and we would say, okay, play your cards one at a time. And she would look at it, and she'd be like, okay, the turtle needs to rotate left. Play a rotate left card. Good. You know, go straight, whatever, and do it one at a time. And then after she was getting pretty good at that, we'd say, okay, well, I want you to play three cards at a time. And whatever the cards say, that's what we're going to do. Right. And so we would do that. And eventually we got to the point where it was like, okay, I want you to play the whole thing and then give me the stack of cards. And that's essentially programming what's mm-hmm. going to happen. And then we would flip the cards one at a time. Boop. Boop, boop, and we would go through the process and we would watch the turtle do its thing. For people who are really interested in computer science like we are, there are a couple of other features in there that you can also introduce, like the idea of a function. I think they call it the function frog. So you can make a go forward and turn left and have that function, quote unquote, repeated several times in your larger program. Yeah, there's that. And then there's kind of the idea of bugs. They sort of exist as a construct in the game where, you know, you can have someone program the whole thing. And then if something happens, like, oh, that's a bug. And you can have up to three bugs before you have to start over kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So stuff like that. There's a pretty good online community where if you don't really feel up to generating your own mazes, (laughs) you can kind of get some pre-built stuff. So that's helpful if you're not into this whole concept of software development stuff. But yeah, there's the function stuff. I think Robot Turtles has the concept of recursion in it, which is a much more advanced topic. But the idea is there looping, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But Robot Turtles is a really good way to start to teach logical sequencing in a way that makes sense and is still actually fun. You can even do this as a race if you have you know, multiple kids. And this is really where you're going to need help setting up a scenario that's fair. Yeah. Because the goal of this is for the robot to get to the crystal. So if you have two turtles, which the game totally supports, they're trying to race to get to this crystal or maybe 
to there's each two crystals get to on the board or whatever, yeah. you know, you, you can do that. And if one of the kids can find a more efficient way to do it, you know what I mean? Then now you're rewarding efficiency, which is like a real programming idea of rewarding efficiency. So there's some really interesting things you can do with this. And there definitely are other games that you can grow into, which obviously wouldn't fit this four-year-old range. But we mentioned Quirky Circuits as an example. All the Potato Pirates games mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. really good games that teach programming concepts as well. And, you know, I think we'll talk about those when we get to, like, games for 10-year-olds. But, yeah, Robot Turtles, great game from uh, ThinkFun. So that's our list of 10. Let's review that, and then we'll talk about some big kid games or unexpected (sighs) games that four-year-olds can play. Sure. So our top 10 games for four-year-olds are My First Castle Panic, Disney It's a Small World, Silly Street, Monza, Dragomino, Dragon's Breath, Turtle Splash... Mmm, Gnomes at Night, and Robot Turtles. For more adulty kind of games, I think last time we did mention King Domino. I have two more to mention that most four-year-olds can handle, but you might find a little surprising. The first one is Mountains. Mountains is a habit game that is not a yellow box game, but I was super surprised how well this works if you have a young kid who is a little bit more patient. So it's not a 15-minute game. It's closer to half an hour. But this game is one part press your luck, one part deduction, and two parts memory. And it's got a kind of semi-cooperative theme. You're borrowing, quote-unquote, equipment to perform mountain hikes from the other players. There's no reading involved in this one, like other ones that we recommend. And there's a stamp with a real ink pad as part of the game, which is part of the attraction for a four-year-old, let's be fair. But I really love this for a four-year-old who's ready for a little bit more length, but not necessarily a lot more difficulty and a lot more skills. My other more grown-up-y game is Drop It. I'm not even sure Drop It would qualify as a grown-up-y game. Well, big kid game, (laughs) maybe? I mean, I don't know. Maybe, I guess. But Drop It is an excellent dexterity game. You're dropping polyomino pieces into a clear vertical board. Yeah. It's pretty fun. We started playing it when Elliot, our youngest, was pretty newly turned four and discovered that it's pretty easy for little kids to understand the basics of how the game works and adults can just help them with how you keep score. And honestly, like if you drop something and it falls in a cool way, that's still a reason to give a high five. Yes, exactly. (laughs) All right, Anisha, that is our list with a couple of extras thrown in for free because that's what we do That's the family gamer's way. (laughs) That is our way, right? It's like the baker's ten. (laughs) the family gamers 10 is actually 12 all right well i am sure that there are lots of other opinions about these games everybody kind of knows that five-year-old games are coming soon so if you want to talk about five-year-old games too you can do that lots of different ways that you can find us on social media you can find us at family gamers aa on facebook twitter instagram tiktok and youtube you should join our facebook community where else can you see videos of us eating cinnamon-flavored peeps? Oh, That's literally the only place. That is literally the only place where mm-hmm. you can see it. Yep. But it's also a great place to talk with other like-minded parents and adults who want to play games with kids in their lives. Yes, and I will confess that that is actually probably a better reason. <laughs> that depends on what you're there for. So you can do that by going to thefamilygamers.com forward slash community or just heading over to Facebook and searching for The Family Gamers Community. Or looking on any podcast show notes. It's always there. Anitra, do you know how many people are in the Family Gamers community? Almost 650 people. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a good place to go and talk and find out what games everybody likes. We've also been sharing information about like 3D printed game inserts. Yeah. And all I, well, that's in the chat more. Well, that's in the chat yeah, more. Maybe. But yes. It's a good place to be. Anyway, you can also always just email us. Andrew at thefamilygamers.com. Anitra at thefamilygamers.com. You can also show us some love by getting some Family Gamers merch or Play Games With Your Kids merch. Mm-hmm. We have t-shirts, hoodies, and mugs and more at thefamilygamers.com forward slash merch. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends about it. Even better, leave us a review along with a rating at Apple Podcast or other podcast subscription sources. Mm-hmm. Wherever it, you get your podcast, It does a ton to help. The Family Gamers is sponsored by First Move Financial. Go to firstmovefinancial.com forward slash family gamers to learn how the team at First Move Financial can help you pile up the victory points. 
Well, I think that's going to be it for us this week. This has been a great time really examining why we love specific games for specific ages. Mm, Yeah, it really has been helpful almost for me to reframe kind of my thoughts around some games, even though our kids are past those ages, because it helps us recommend games too. Yeah. So it's been a fun exercise, I think. Yeah. Hopefully it's been helpful for you. And if you've got suggestions for us for games that are perfect for five-year-olds, please let us know. (laughs) But until next time, everybody. Play Play games games with with your your kids. kids.